Luke 5.17, we're studying the chronological life of Jesus and, and uh, looking at all the different Gospels, um, but, but uh, uh, following the chronology as, as spelled out in Luke, but we'll look at, look at several different passages today from the other Gospels. Last week we covered how Jesus performed his first of three Messianic miracles, and those were miracles that only the Messiah could perform. And that first one was healing of a Jewish leper. Never had there been a recorded healing of a Jewish leper. Jesus did that, and that immediately brought out the, the, this stage of inquiry. Now, the first stage of inquiry, you, you might remember from John the Baptist, is where the Pharisees will come, and they'll send a delegation, and they will only observe. They can't speak, they can only observe. And then if they bring back word and say, yes, this is a significant movement that indeed that this might be the Messiah, then they can come back and then can be the inquiry. And so what happened to the herald, John the Baptist, is now going to happen to the King Jesus. The first step in the review of <clears throat> whether this is a, a, a viable messianic movement uh, by, by the Pharisees are going to come out and make this analysis. So he had healed this Jewish leper and Remember, he had healed this Jewish leper up by the Sea of Galilee. Word gets back down to Jerusalem. And now they have to go, and, and now this delegation comes from Jerusalem back up to the Galilee area. The healing of the leper can only occur after eight days. It's an eight-day process for the healing of the leper. So the leper had to go, eight-day process, word has to get down. So this may be you know, two weeks later we pick up the next portion of what the Scripture is going to tell us about the life of Jesus. So Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But Jesus, when he perceived their thoughts, he answered and he said, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he was, had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And, when they were all, and they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, what we have seen, what we have seen strange things this day. So you see, it says in, in 517 that there was a certain day when he was teaching there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So this was no insignificant gathering. Remember, he's a four-day journey from Jerusalem up by the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum at, at this point, because this is, this is actually revealed in, uh, in the, the, this same account. 
is talked about in the book of Matthew and in the book of, of Mark. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And when he entered Capernaum after some days, they had heard he was in the house, and immediately there was this gathering. So this is in the city of Capernaum. This is one of the main bases of Jesus for his, his ministry in this first year and a half. And so he's in this city of Capernaum, which is on the north of the Sea of Galilee. So these Pharisees walk a four-day journey up there. They are from every city, every city, it says, every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So Pharisees from all over were coming. Now I have seen some of the houses in the Galilee area, still the, the remains of some of these stone houses. They're not that big. So this place was packed, but it's not, it's not like a, a big room like this. They, they didn't have roof structures that, that in typical houses that, that could cover areas this large. So they were smaller rooms. And, and um, so, so there's this whole delegation has come to view this man who just before this had healed a Jewish leper. And so it... it, it and, and so they're watching this. And it says, And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So there was a sense of the power of the Lord. Jesus was there, and the power of the Lord was there to heal them. Remember, he had performed mass healings in Peter's house that after he had raised up Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath day. Then right after the Sabbath is over, the, the house filled up, and he had healed up many. So these, this healing of many was becoming now a characteristic of Jesus' ministry. But it was that special healing, that special messianic miracle that brought this delegation. Because now this was significant. Now this was something that nobody else had ever done in recorded history throughout the Old Testament. A Jewish leper had been healed. The only lepers that had been healed uh, uh, after the law was complete, there, were, there, there was a man, his name was uh, Naaman, he was a Syrian, not a Jew, there was a woman, her, her, uh, it was the sister of Moses, but that was not after the law was complete. So never did, the, the, did they get to fulfill Le, Leviticus 13 and 14 to go through the whole sequence of events that are needed to verify the cleansing of a leper. Two chapters, over 100 verses, they never got to utilize. And now they did. So they came out to, to see this man and his power was there for them to heal. You know, you can have the presence of the Lord in a situation that is doing something. So, power was present for him to perform healing. This can come today. Sometimes God will come and God is going to minister in healing. God does this at times. And if you've not seen it, you've not seen it. You should see it sometime where the power of God comes. And it will fill a room and begin to start healing. The power of God can come through preaching. You may, you may be called one day to speak or to teach a Bible study. You feel, I don't have it. You spend some time in prayer. You spend some time seeking God and preparing for this and crying out to God. And you will see the power of God is there to perform your teaching. You will see that the power of God, the Spirit of God shows up to confirm the very things that you have cried out for in prayer. You can do this in secular situations as well. You have to go and give a seminar someplace. You know, give a presentation. You pray. You spend time praying and asking God to pour out through you as you are going to teach. God will do this in this secular situation. And in the secular situation, it's actually all the more exciting because the people don't expect to get hit by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, they're just, wow. 
This was a tremendous delivery. I've never seen anything like this. Early on in my career, I used to have uh, uh, visitors would come to the department, different professors would come to speak, and they'd spend 30 minutes or an hour with each professor in the department going around. And I used to pray as these famous professors would be coming to my office, I would pray, for days, Lord, as they come to my office, let me make to them a good presentation of my work. You know, so here I am, going to be one-on-one with them and just presenting chemistry. We are not bound by doing just Bible stuff to have God answer us. If this is your career, this is your profession, you ask God to bless you, and He will bless you in that. And I would get done sharing sometimes with these famous professors in my office, and they'd be like, where are you from? <laughs> I had one, one uh, woman for professor who, who uh, was heading up the National Science Foundation Chemistry Division, and she said, you just presented that as if you were an evangelist. <laughs> Little did she know. <laughs> and... and uh, um, I had had guys, after I would get done sharing, they'd go, wow, this is like drinking from a fire hose. And, and even there, on the spot, I would begin to have people say, you know, have you ever considered moving to another university? You know, and, and they'd try to get me to move to their departments. You can do this early on in your career. You ask God to bless your work, and guess what? He answers prayer. Oh, what a novel concept. God does this. God does this sort of thing. You can ask God to bless your career and He will do it. The power of God shows up to perform that for which God's purposes are are ordained. And you can pray to that end and God will do it. Don't pray and you won't show up and you'll be just like everybody else. But as believers, this is something you can tap into if you so desire it. Then behold, men brought... On a bed, a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling in the midst before Jesus. Okay, so they bring this man, so so there's these men carrying a paralyzed man on some stretcher, and they're trying to bring him in, and they can't because of the crowd. The place is filled up. Plus... It's a bunch of dignitaries in there. You've got Pharisees who are the religious leaders. And you know, religious leaders, you know, they've they got to be the ones to be in the house. And especially you've got the Pharisees from Jerusalem. So, you, you know, you've got all the top ones. You know, they, they come from Washington, D.C. You know, all the top people. So you can't get in the house when it's just full of dignitaries in there. You know, you can't just go stepping through with your stretcher. You, you might be able to do this to just regular folks to... You know, the, um, the rednecks, you can step over them and everything, and they understand, and it's okay. But when you get a bunch of dignitaries, you can't go stepping over them and, you know, bumping into them with this stretcher and, and stuff, because they don't, they don't take it very well. And uh, uh, so, how, do you, how are you going to get them in? So, what they do is they go up to the roof, and every roof in those days, there was this, there's this uh, staircase that would go up to the roof, and they start moving across some of the tiles, and they start lowering this guy down in. Now, the roofs were not very high, uh, because, because they were just not very high. You can, you, you can see them. So, they're probably lowering them in, and other people can take the guy's stretcher and lowering them down. And Jesus sees this. Now, Jesus looks at the heart. You know, what would be the typical response? How rude of you to come in like this. How rude of you to mess up this roof. I mean, if you were a good Christian, you wouldn't do this. 
You know, good Christians don't do that. As if it's written in the Bible what good Christians do. I mean, you get Christians. Good Christians, it's, Christians are Christians. So anyway, so there were no Christians at that time anyway. But we're just, you know, if you were good Jews, you wouldn't do that. But Jesus sees their heart. He sees their heart. He sees that they didn't mean to be a disruption. They just wanted their friend healed. The power of God was there to perform healing, and Jesus could look past you know, all these, this little mess that's occurring. All the messiness and all the, 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 the things that would normally disrupt people. And Jesus just, just looks at the heart. He's like, wow. You know, I just admire the heart. This is a good lesson for us. That when people try to do something that's good, and they do it in kind of an awkward way, it's okay. If we look at their heart, they meant well. You know, and, and you see this with children. You know, they, they mean well. And, and, you know, look, Mommy, what I made for you. And, and you see that they've taken ten toilet paper rolls and pulled all the stuff off. And, you know, made this flower display out of it or something. It was a pile. And you're like, what have you done? But they meant well. You see what I mean? It's looking at the heart. It's looking at the heart. And you will see this with people, like, you know, you meant well. One day I went to a pastor to confess something that I had said to somebody else, and I explained why I had said it, and, and you know, he, he looked at me and said, I can see you really meant well in doing that. It probably wasn't the best way to present it to them, but you meant well. Let's see how we can get this thing fixed up. You see what I mean? Rather than just, just slamming me for the way that I, I did this, he just looked at my heart. And this is what Jesus did. He says, these guys mean well. And it says, when he saw their faith, he said to them, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. So, you know, there was no requirement for faith, for healing at this point. We will see when faith becomes a requirement. At this point, Jesus healed the masses. Once in a while, it says, you know, the person had great faith, but there was no requirement for faith. Jesus just healed the masses as a testimony. Later in his ministry, we will see there's a clear line of demarcation that comes. And after that point, he performs no healings without a demonstration of faith, without a confession of faith. At this point, he's just healing the masses. And he sees their faith, and he says to the man, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, their theology is correct. Only God can forgive sins. I mean, how dare this man do it? But the, you see, the Pharisees never verbalized it. It says, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemy? So they were reasoning. They didn't speak it out, because this is not the time where they can do interrogation. The first phase is just observation. You see the same thing in, in the Mark portion. In Mark chapter 2, verse 6, it says, some scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, they were just speaking this in their heart. The same thing happens in the Matthew portion. In Matthew chapter 9, uh, it, it says in chapter 9, verse 3 of Matthew, And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man speaks blasphemies. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said. So, Jesus knows our thoughts. These men verbalized nothing. Now, I'm sure he could see it on their faces, like... <laughs> but 
but they verbalize nothing because at this phase of interrogation, they're not allowed to open their mouths. They can only observe the same pattern we saw. And, and John the Baptist did exactly the same thing. If you remember when we first started teaching on John the Baptist, how he, that the, the, the Pharisees were reasoning in their hearts and John turned to them and he addressed exactly what they were reasoning in their hearts. And so Jesus is doing this. He addresses not what they verbalized, but what they verbalized internally. How can this man forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. In the sense of forgiving them globally. You know, we can forgive somebody for a sin against us, but we can't forgive somebody in, uh, for sins that, that they have committed in, in their lives. This is up to God. And so they say, who... Who is this who speaks sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this, the, the, the way that, the, that it's said, man, your sins are forgiven you, this is just like in Leviticus chapter 3, this passive sense of, they're gone, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is speaking like the Scriptures speak, your sins will be forgiven you, like in Leviticus. And so this bothers these men because theologically it's, it's strange. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It says, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, this is in, in Luke 5.22, when he perceived their thoughts, he answered and he said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go home. So the question is not, which is easier to do? To forgive sins or to perform a healing? The question that Jesus said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? Now, let me give you an example. Um, if, if, I say, if I say, okay, all of you here, your sins are forgiven you, forever. Whatever you do, don't worry about it, your sins are forgiven you can never prove me wrong. You can't prove me wrong. But, if one of you should have a broken leg, and I say to you, within one minute, you will rise up and start dancing. I mean, that, you know, everybody's going to watch, okay? <laughs> Let's see if this, this is going to happen. Which is easier to say? Jesus said, which is easier to say? Not which is easier to do, but which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk? Well, your sins are forgiven you. It's easier to say because it, it, it requires no external proof. If you say, rise up and walk, you've got to prove this thing. But he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. This is typical Jewish, a typical Jewish way of addressing it. In other words, I will demonstrate to you the easier by doing something much harder. It's as if you were to say, oh, Dr. Tour, you can't run five miles anymore. You're too old for that. And I say, oh, yeah? And I go out and I run the Houston Marathon and win it. <laughs> you would be convinced that, okay, I can run five miles, right? I kind of like that picture. Jesus said, okay, so that you know that I can say, forgive sins. He says to the man, arise up and walk. And it says that, it says, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. 
And Luke says, immediately he rose up before them. You know, if, if you read, uh, um, if you read, were to read the, the portion in Mark, it, it would say, it says that, uh, again, immediately he rose up. So this man immediately jumped up. It wasn't like, okay, all right, just kind of try it. Just, just, just kind of try it. And, you know, little by little he gets up and he's shaky at first. This is a guy who was paralyzed. You know, when someone's paralyzed, you know, maybe you go through physical therapy and you go through all these things and, and you work the muscles a little bit and eventually they start hobbling and little by little they start walking. And, and immediately the man stood up. This is a real miracle. Immediately this man stood up and Jesus, he goes up before them and, you know, Jesus didn't just say, he said, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. In other words, what do you do when somebody has just, you know, learn to walk. You don't say, oh, and pick that up and go. No, you let somebody else care. Let, let, let me get this for you. And you help them down the steps and you help them through the crowd. No, Jesus said, I want you to rise up right now and pick up that bed you were on and take it home with you. I mean, this guy, he just goes walking out with this thing across his shoulder. This is a miracle. This clearly, something happened that day. Jesus demonstrated it to them. But you know, this was out of love. He wanted to demonstrate something to them. And he did it. He demonstrated it to them and they said, wow, we've never, we've never seen anything like this before. Now, let's read in the next portion. So, this is uh, uh, Luke five twenty-seven. After these things, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he left all rose up and followed him. Now this is an interesting portion. This shows Jesus' power over men. There were two types of tax collectors in Israel, and they, they were Jews that worked for the Roman government, so they were hated. You hear this term often, tax collectors and sinners. Sinners is a euphemism for prostitutes. And, and uh, uh, there were two types of tax collectors. There was the income tax collector, who would go and make an assessment of how much you made. And then there was a more hated class, and that class was the, the, the customs agent. And the customs agent, you, you had, it's, it's like when you come into a country and you have certain goods and you have to declare them and, and, and pay money for them. They were the more hated class, were the customs agents, actually. And in fact, in Jewish writings, which still exist today, in Jewish writings, it speaks about honesty. But to a customs agent... You didn't have to be honest in Jewish writings. And the reason, the reasoning is, just as you would hide your goods from a thief so that they wouldn't be stolen, you can hide them from a customs agent's custom agent because he's a thief. You know, that, that, that's the, the typical pill-pull rationale of, of the Jewish teaching. And so... They, they were a, a hated class of people. Jesus goes out and he sees this man, Levi. Levi is his Jewish name, or Levi is his Jewish name. Matthew is his Greek name. And you see him referred to, for example, if you read in the book of Matthew, you, you see him referred to, same man, same, same occasion. Jesus passed by from there. This is in Matthew 9.9. 9. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in tax office and he said to him, follow me, so you rose and followed him. Same name, Greek and, and Hebrew. And so... So, uh, same person, he sees him in the tax office, and he says, come, and he comes. Jesus can do something immediately in the heart of a human being. He can do it. Jesus can do that in the heart of a human being. 
doesn't always happen that way. He didn't always call people that way. In this case, he did. And immediately, the man dropped everything and started following him. This is in, in Luke 5.29. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their, and their scribes and Pharisees complained against him, against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them and said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So this guy, Levi, is a very wealthy guy. What does he do? It says he has a feast in his house for Jesus. Then Levi gave him, Jesus, a great feast in his own house. You know, this man's having a party. He's happy. He's following Jesus. He says, I'm going to throw a party for you. It says, not a feast for Jesus. It says, a great feast. So this is a rich guy, a great feast. And Jesus says, go, no, 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 no. no, no. It, it's okay. Don't, don't, don't bother. Yeah, We've we got a lot of ministry to do, you know. I'm a busy guy. Jesus said, I'll go. I'll go, no problem. Levi is, in fact, the, the seventh disciple that is called. Remember, up to this point, we've, we've talked about the first six. This is the seventh. Jesus goes to the party. And it says, at the party, who's Levi going to invite? The only people he knows. Tax collectors and sinners. Those were the only people that, that, that he could relate to. The people that were outcast by the Jewish society. The other tax collectors and the prostitutes. So he invites them. They're his friends. And you will see when someone comes out of the world and comes to the Lord, very often they're very good at bringing other people along with them because that's their community they know. And they're bringing them along. And Jesus didn't go, you know, you have to refrain from every appearance of evil. So, you know, let's not have this party. I, I appreciate it, Levy, but... You know, once you get some other friends, we'll have the party, okay? Jesus said, no, I'll go. Bring your friends. Bring them along. It's okay. Now, Jesus didn't go alone. He was with his disciples. And if you want to minister in a certain place, if your desire is to minister in a bar, you can do that. But you might want to bring somebody else along so you don't get, get messed up. You know, because so that you have other people around you and be accountable. Now, if you have you know, trouble with alcohol, then you might want to be really careful. But Jesus said, I'll go. And what happened is the scribes showed up and the Pharisees showed up and they started saying, so now they can start verbalizing. Because now they see that the movement is significant. Now they're starting to verbalize. But it says, and they said to his disciples, they start saying this. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? If he were a godly man, he would know what these people are really like. We know what they're like. Look at these guys. These are a bunch of tax collectors and prostitutes. If he were really a godly man, he would know what they're like. And Jesus turns to them. He says, look, you, you, you know, those who, who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The same portion in, in, uh, in Matthew, Jesus said, when Jesus heard that, this is in Matthew 9.12, it, it says that, um, uh, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, 
and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus said to the Pharisees, who loved the Scriptures, they dearly loved the Scriptures and respected them, He says to them, go and learn what this means. And He's quoting from Hosea, the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. He's taking their own Scriptures and He's saying to them, go and learn what this means. And He quotes Hosea 6, 6. So they know this verse. Many of them. What did the scribes do? The scribes had memorized the entire scriptures, and they, they, they memorized the oral law as well. What's the difference between a scribe and a Pharisee? All scribes were Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes. Scribes were a, a division of Pharisees that memorized the entire scriptures. Not everybody could have a book like we have, or an iPod, or a smartphone like we have, and have, have, have you, you know, or the Bible in the cloud that you can just get. <laughs> they didn't have access to the cloud. And so these were big, big scrolls that were held in synagogues. And so they had men that memorized the whole thing. So they well knew Hosea 6.6, which says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus said to them, go and learn what this means. Well, didn't God prescribe a whole sacrificial system in Israel? He did. But He's saying, without mercy, your sacrifice doesn't mean much. Just like it says in the New Testament, you could give your body to be burned, but if you don't have love, it means nothing. In the same way, if you have sacrifice without mercy, go and show mercy, he says. Go and show mercy. If you're going to err, if you're ever going to err in dealing with a situation, err on the side of mercy. If you think that, oh, maybe I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't be so merciful. Maybe I should come down harder. It's better to err on the side of mercy. You know, it, it says in James chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's James 2.13. Judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you feel that somebody has done wrong to you, and if you think, well, I'm going to get them back. I'm just going to do this back to them. Just remember, the judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what the Scriptures call us to, to show mercy. The Scriptures talk about, you know that verse that says, and it will be poured out, poured into your lap, blessed, overflowing. You know what that's about? It's not giving money. Many people apply it to giving money. If you give, it's going to come back to you overflowing in your lap. That may happen too, I don't know. But that portion in the Sermons of the Mount is speaking to those who do not judge the other. Those who show mercy. If you don't judge and you show mercy, you will have mercy pouring out in your lap and overflowing. It says in Romans 4, verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? Before his own master he will stand or fall. And stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So when we take a hard line, this is, that's Romans 14 verse 4. When we take a hard line against somebody, and we think, oh, you know, there's, there's no way that this guy's going to stand. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Before his own master he will stand or fall. And stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Jesus said to the religious leaders, I mean, they're the ones who are supposed to have the Scriptures. 
He said to them, you go and you learn this. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. This is a good lesson for me. That mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the message that Jesus gave. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Your word is so good. Lord, I thank you for the words of Jesus that call us to something much greater. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus looks at our hearts, that you look at the heart of these young people, that you know their intent. Father, thank you that you are so embracing. Lord, I thank you that that you look upon these young people with great mercy and call them to merciful lives so that they may have mercy poured out in their lives just as well. Father, your mercy and grace be upon them, I pray. And may they too walk in mercy. Father, I pray your kindness fill them to overflowing. In the name of Jesus, amen.